to the Conservation Tribe podcast, the first episode of 2021. There has been a decent amount of time since my last episode, so I want to quickly touch on why that is the case. And that pretty much comes down to the fact that life has been pretty hectic over the last few months. I think a few people can relate to that. But for me personally, there's been a bit of a change. I've recently moved back to Perth, so my hometown in Australia. And in addition to that, I am taking a bit of a change career-wise. I have started a new course learning how to program or learning how to code. So the ultimate aim for that is to learn a new skill set which will allow me to build eco-related applications on the blockchain. So for those unfamiliar with the blockchain, it's a emerging technology and I see, I personally see there being a lot of environmental and social upside. So I want to put myself in a position where I can make an impact in that space. So studying that new course is going to take up a lot of time, but I still want to continue the podcast, but I'll probably have to rein it in a bit and maybe focus on doing one podcast per month as opposed to two to three a month. So apologies for, I guess, the change in content frequency. I hope you don't mind, uh, but I hope you understand that there's a, I'm kind of doing a little bit of a pivot here career-wise, and I just need to make sure that I've got the balance right in terms of where I'm putting my time. But if you are interested in listening to some podcasts that I do, uh, then feel free to subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, I hope to bring my own kind of unique flavor to the conservation space. So yeah, thanks again for listening. Um, sorry for the lack of content, but I'm hoping to bring back some more content in the moving forward for the rest of the year. But without further ado, let's get stuck into our first episode. So today I'll be interviewing Tam, who is an ecologist researching platypus populations within the southeast of Queensland. So before we get stuck into the conversation, I'm going to pass the mic on to Tam and she's going to do a acknowledgement of country. And after that, we'll get um, started with the conversation. So thank you for your time. I hope you enjoy the podcast and stay tuned for more across the rest of 2021. Thank you. We would like to acknowledge the Yagara and Turrbal peoples who are the traditional custodians on the land in which this podcast was recorded and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I would also like to extend this acknowledgement and respect to the many traditional custodians of the lands where I have completed my fieldwork across southeast Queensland, from north of Mianjing to the south. Thank you. To get us started, I'm very interested to hear what gets you excited about platypus. Uh, what what is your drive behind you wanting to be a platypus protector, which is also your Instagram handle? <laughs> what is the drive? Yes, I was lucky enough to volunteer uh, down in Victoria in the Grampians on a three day platypus survey, and just like any ecologist, you get excited about all wildlife. But I guess for me, we caught a couple of platypus, and I was up close and personal with this amazing critter like I was so in awe of being able to touch the fur which was so soft the bill is like nothing that you think it would be you think it would be hard like a duck's bill but it's quite pliable around the edges it feels like a leather chamois you can see all the pores on there which are the little electroreceptors and I was just I guess I had a moment with a platypus then and I came back to Queensland going 
wow, like there has to be something similar here. I went in research to find, you know, same surveys or groups or anything like that and really came across that there was a a lack of that uh, engagement and that research, which was quite scary for me because the fact that they are such an elusive uh, species and apart from the platypus watch group that I now help run with Wildlife Queensland, there was really no ongoing promotion of platypus conservation within Queensland and especially in southeast Queensland where there is a lot of impacts to their habitat. So I guess it was then that I yeah. kind of made it my mission to really delve head first and I completed my honours uh, back in 2015 And that was on habitat requirements and diet assemblage, which just laid the foundation for a lot of the knowledge that I gained on platypuses. And then I finished my honours and went, oh, crap, there's still a lot more that needs to be done. Um, Okay. That was like a realisation. You're like, okay, there's more work to do. Yeah, there's a lot more work to do. So that's when it kind of on to the PhD um, happened. So Okay, okay. You mentioned that there was there needs to be a lot of kind of research um, around this animal, and that kind of came as like to, to me that is a somewhat of a surprise because platypus is a fairly recognisable animal um, when you like it's at least in Australia pretty much everyone is familiar with the word and roughly what it looks like is this pretty strange looking animal like it looks like a mixture between a few different animals really in one. But yet there isn't this uh, this research behind it. It's kind of like this um, on the surface level understanding of the of the animal. Is is that a risk where there's this this kind of mass awareness of this animal, but that awareness is only like very thin? And especially in Queensland, like there's been a lot of great research coming out of like Tassie. You know, you see them all the time in Tassie, apparently. Um, Victoria and New South Wales, they have really been the front runners in a lot of that research. But Queensland have been very sporadic. There hasn't been ongoing consistent research. And that's what you need when you're monitoring such a, a species like the platypus. You know, Victoria and New South Wales have 20, 40 plus years of research happening, which is amazing. And they've been able to really delve in and understand Uh, those populations whereas Queensland we've had some intermittent stuff over the years but it seems to be like 10 years between any decent research happening and then and then it just goes by the wayside and there are species that can't just go by the wayside because they're elusive because you don't see them so readily that connection for people uh, is really difficult but also uh, getting those records so if people do see platypus in the wild they don't think it's important to let us know or to record it online um, on the many databases that there are now. And, you know, if we don't know that they're there or persisting in an area, then we can't do anything to help and protect them. So, and the lack of in-depth research just makes it really difficult for any management and planning if we don't know the species isn't is there or if they're not there. And so it's, to me, just that ongoing conversation with all the different stakeholders that we work with is is certainly really important. So who are the stakeholders? Are you including like the general public as small stakeholders in this? Or are you talking about more larger groups? 
organizations? No, like everyone within the community. So I'm so lucky to be able to work with uh, small catchment groups. So they are like the grassroots, homegrown, getting in there, doing the on-ground rehabilitation, which is amazing. And then we work with local councils and then through to um, our local government as well, um, feeding data and information into our local government as well. And so keeping everyone in the loop and keeping everyone linked is is really important for, for the management. Mm-hmm. You So we, we touched on, I guess, the weird-looking, weirdly beautiful characteristics of the platypus. Um, what, like what, if you had to, in a one-liner, kind of describe what a platypus is like how how would you do that and then the follow-up question would be what's who are their closest relatives because it's probably not what people would expect maybe yes oh gosh Mm, like a mystic uh shimmery little creature (laughs) they just (laughs) they to me they are just very kind of magical in a way um because they are just many different weird looking things yeah well they, they do look um, so quite mystical really, they, they they do look like out of this in planet, the water in, when in, they're in swimming a, and they're yeah. shimmering and <laughs> yeah. um they they really are just um fascinating to watch and they you get mesmerized by them if you know if you're lucky enough to see them in the wild what's the I most mesmerizing hours. characteristic is it the the nose what, uh, what, what do you what do you actually call that the snout the, the bill oh the bill <laughs> bill yeah oh yeah they are oh, their bill is just phenomenal like it's it's like i said it's not what you think it would be this it's not a hard like beak or like duck bill kind of thing yeah. it's it's really just amazing the feel of it like that a leather chamois you know something you wash your car with that really soft leather feeling that's what it feels like to me and you can see all the tiny little paws which is how they find their their prey items their food of the aquatic macroinvertebrates because their little food items will set off little um, muscle pulses under the water and that's what the platypus is picking up because they close their eyes ears and nostrils when they're foraging and that's what they're picking up underwater so it's just you know it's incredible they are really just why, why do they so, close their eyes and ears? They don't need them. They're, they're not of use to them mm. underwater foraging. So when they're really going for it in the rocks and the debris and everything, you're not going to see too much when there's leaves and stuff in your face. You can't rely on that to really find food. So their electroreceptors in their bill is, is what they rely upon. Mm-hmm. And so what are some of the... So the adaptations of the platypus. So you got the like, why have they evolved in the way that they they have? I imagine there's some some purpose to all these traits of the platypus. Well, yeah, and they've only just amazingly, it's only just come out sequenced ninety six percent of the platypus genome, which is phenomenal. Um, so that can tell us so much more about how they've adapted to you know be mammal in some aspects, but then they lay eggs and they don't have, you know, mammalian nipples. And so it's quite amazing that they have kept, you know, ancestral bird and reptilian features from, you know, laying eggs and having a cloaca 
which is just your one opening for your feces and everything as well as laying eggs. So, Oh, really? Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So they diverged over 187 million years ago and their closest relative is the echidna. So they're part of the monotreme order and they're the only two uh, families in it, the echidna and our platypus. So um, the platypus is solely the only species in Australia, whereas we have the short-beaked echidna, but then there's also the long-beaked echidna in New Guinea. So, yeah. but yeah, solely endemic to to our east coast of Australia, which is yeah. So the, again, the mono, like so a lot that, of our species. Yeah. So they're part of the mono monotreme monotrem monotreme. How do you pronounce that? Mon- mono, monotreme. Yeah. Monotreme order. And there's only so there's we've got the echidna and the various echidna species in there, and then the platypus. And they're the only yeah. uh, mammals that lay eggs. Yes. Yeah. And the platypus and the echidna, they don't, like what I was saying before, like the echidna has been the most closely related to the platypus, but they look nothing like each other. So no. <laughs> it, even in that, I'm like, how does that even work? One's got like all these little spikes and one looks like a, like a hybrid of three different animals. And it's, <laughs> but yet they're like really, well, closely related, you know. Yeah. That is that is so fascinating to me. It is, yeah. And so being the only two ma- like uh, mammals that lay eggs, why, why are there so few? Like why is it that there's, you know, the, the platypus and the echidna, they're, they're here, they're the, the minority within the, the mammal species in terms of being able to kind of lay eggs. Why are there not more of them? Like are they, yeah, like why is that the case? Yeah, I think the... As from what I know, echidnas are going okay. They're pretty good because they encompass their distribution across most of Australia. Um, so they're okay. Um, but the platypus, because they are so highly dependent upon freshwater water sources and their distribution only goes from North Queensland at Cooktown through to uh, Tasmania and they've now been classed as extinct on the mainland of South Australia. There is a uh, translocated population at Kangaroo Island, but because they're so highly dependent upon freshwater waterways and the impacts of urbanisation, our irrigation, our agriculture, and now our climate change, which is exacerbating, you know, droughts, the frequency and the severity, they've got a lot of impacts happening within their, within their ecosystems. And it's, it's hard to, because they are a species that we don't see readily, it's hard to really put a number on them. Mm-hmm. But looking back, there was a recent, uh, research article that came out about the historical distribution of platypus and um, Dr. Tennille Hawke, she went through all these newspaper articles and these these reports saying that platypus were described as prolific, like you you could go to a river and see many platypus Mm. and it wasn't a problem. You don't have that now. There's no way you would call platypus a prolific species. So, um, and it is because we are impacting so much of their freshwater waterways and water 
being the number one thing that they need to survive and it's becoming more and more scarce. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So on, on that kind of note, what is the conservation status of platypus? What is that status at the moment? So for Queensland state, it's least concern. So it doesn't even get a look in for any planning development or anything like that. There's no specific flag for environmental assessments to be done specifically for platypus. And on the IUCN, International Union for Conservation of Nature Red List, it is listed as near threatened, but that doesn't hold weight with our Environment in Protection and Biodiversity Act, which is the act that is the one that specifically protects, you know, koalas, flying foxes, the ones that they specify that are a threatened species. So the platypus has been wonderfully in the news uh, recently and Victoria have just instated platypus to be vulnerable in their state and have focused finances to fund rehabilitation and ongoing research. And then the New South Wales group have submitted a nomination to have the platypus upgraded as vulnerable across all states. So nationally to have platypus on the EPBC Act upgraded to vulnerable. So then they are in the threatened species group and they will hopefully get the the recognition that they need. Yeah. So the least concern in Queensland, that kind of is a bit surprising for me. I I imagine that you don't agree with that assessment. Yeah. And I just, I find it interesting because like I said, the, the lack of research, how can we, how could we even really know? And unfortunately the the little bits of research that I've done with Platypus Watch and Wildlife Queensland with our environmental DNA sampling, we've looked at historical data and we've sampled in these historical areas and have not found platypus to be present there anymore. So just that just that small uh, little kind of bit of information and data mm-hmm. alone is kind of scary because Pretty that telling. means platypus within the last 10 years have disappeared from these areas and no one's been none the wiser. So how do we not know that this is not happening on a bigger scale because there's just not that urgency to really get some yeah. surveys off the ground. So to in order to potentially update that status from least concern to net threat and or vulnerable or some, something else, um, that requires more research in order to provide some level of evidence to the decision makers to make that change. Is that right? Yeah. And so how do you, if we need the research, what are the challenges around from a kind of a government level or whatever that level is, how do we incentivize that research? Like how do we encourage them to be like, yes, we, we need to research more of this species. What does that look like? It is. It's so difficult because obviously, you know, governments are being pulled any which way and they have to prioritise their funding and um, where their priorities lie. And obviously to try and convince them that platypus is a priority, it takes a lot of our own on ground, so the backing of the general public and um, and groups and organisations to, I guess, help foot the bill for this initial research to then hopefully convince the government to go that next step. Um, It does, it it gets really difficult. Like Victoria has been fighting this for 
quite a few years now and they've come to a decision after two years. So, and that's a, that's really a short period of time in that sense, but still it, it does to convince governments to give up money for something like this is, is really difficult. So, and that's the thing. And then it seems to, the worrying thing is that it gets to that point where it's really bad and then they just throw lots of money at it and it's too late. So instead of managing species for now so that they don't get to that, you know, that dire point where populations are just, you know, they're not going to recover naturally, it just doesn't make sense to me that it has to become dire before, you know, some serious action takes place. So it is, yeah, it's really difficult to get the balance right. Yeah, that's a common thing that I see is, the more an, a species, the, the closer it is to extinction, you know, the, the more awareness or the more public attention that that gets. But it's unfortunate yeah. because, you know, if there was some way to get that attention a few moons earlier, they may not be, have to, they may not be in the position that they're currently in. So it's like, how do we yeah. communicate the severity of these issues around the world in a way that people really care about it? And yeah. yeah, I spoke to that about the how to convince these governments because it's almost like you need to change the language when you're communicating to different people. Like you need to position mm-hmm. your argument around like why we should save this platypus. Like I imagine there needs to be some sort of financial or economic benefit linked to survive, uh, saving the platypus in order for them really to consider it? Or is that me being a bit pessimistic? Like there needs to be some economic value linked to it for them to really care. Uh, I think for them to jump on board willingly, certainly that, if it's got yes. a more, yeah, yeah if, it's, if it has a more um, appeal to bring in money or anything like that, then yes, it would be a lot easier. But I guess for us, it's about they want to see that research. They want to see the numbers to say this is actually happening within our backyard. But as we've just said, how can we get to that point (laughs) where we can't get the funding to do that? And so you get crazy people like me that are just hell-bent on doing as much as they can with the resources that I can and the backing of the university and other organizations to at least be able to get that point to the government and be like, Hey, this is, you know, this is what we've seen. So, Mm. um, it is, it's, it's really difficult. Yeah. So you, you mentioned before a bit of like, um, how the public can get involved in this as well. So like you, you said, if there's some, if it makes economic sense from a government level, there's less friction in order to make a change because there's like a benefit to the economy. Yeah. But if that isn't necessarily super obvious, there needs to be some other reason. And I think one um, reason that I am attracted to is this idea of like public pressure, because this is something that we can all participate in and it's very kind of easy to do. Uh, in a lot of ways, you can do it on social media, you can do it um, yeah. to speaking to friends, um, local type community events. These are things that we can do at an individual level. And if we do it enough, we can build up this this, this social pressure, which then hopefully if there's a, enough of it can help push the governments into making yeah. these these this, these decisions. So the Victorian one, because you said that was a recent change where they, the platypus in Victoria are now considered um, vulnerable, did you say? 
Yes. Yeah. What What were the uh, kind of what did that process look like to them? Was Was there a lot of social pressure in kind of Victoria? I'm just trying. I'm interested into maybe the reason why that was um, kind of successful. Yeah. They and they've got a lot again, they have a lot more research. They've got 20 plus years of surveys, so capture and tag surveys. And so they've got a lot of data and a lot of information backing these claims as well. But also, they have had great support from a lot of groups, um, including like fisheries or Victorian fisheries regulation or authority, and these kind of smaller groups that have come on board to kind of band together um, have held weight. And when, uh, from what I understand, when you put in a nomination, it does go out to some form of uh, public um, consultation. And so people can then comment. And so I feel that the community within Victoria have been very proactive in that. They got on board. They wrote those letters to the government. They continued to write those letters to the government. It wasn't just a short little phase and then it just went by the wayside again it was consistent it was ongoing pressure so and that was it was such a collaborative effort and whereas with other states or in Queensland we just haven't had that consistency oh so sad (laughs) are you speaking of sad are you are you optimistic for the future of platypus one thing I give them, they are res- very resilient little critters. Um, and so, you know, they have gone through some severe droughts and floods in history and they've come back. But my concern is that we've exacerbated the impacts to their environment. And if we're not careful, if we're not monitoring them, if we're not actively doing that research and that on-ground work that we will slowly start to see more and more areas of them just disappearing. Um, And if we can get on board and start the change as soon as possible, that could certainly be something that can be turned around. So, um, and especially in an urban environment in Greater Brisbane, like I just think it's amazing that we could brag that, Platypus are here, like I still need they're to see around one. our city. Uh, it's I need to see one. It's amazing. I back to Perth. Yeah, that's that's yes. awesome. Like, and imagine if, um, yeah, like if I'm sure people in like there's many people in Brisbane that haven't haven't seen one before, and if they saw yeah. one, like that's a pretty cool experience. And um, I think people shouldn't underestimate like an encounter like that. Um, because that can change people. Like if you you go yeah. out and you see a, a, a an animal or whatever it is, and it's just something resonates with you, that can change your life. And you can, so yeah, yeah. If, if people are more aware of you know what's in their backyard, um, yes, at that exposure, I think that could be a very positive thing. Um, you mentioned yes. changes and getting onto those changes asap. Uh, what are some of those changes? Looking into where our water is going, um, like I said, platypus highly depend on water. To They do everything in it. It's protection for them swimming in a waterway. They feed. They, ha- they can only feed within a waterway. They mate within a waterway. They do 
everything that they need to in their life in the protection of, of water. So it's really important that that's a priority. So really looking into our irrigation um, legislations and, uh, and certain um, industries and, and where water is going and how we can manage that a lot more sustainably and effectively for not only us, like, come on, if we're wanting to be selfish about this, water is the lifeblood of this country. So uh, hello, we need to be a lot more aware of that. So, um, and for all those species that need fresh water. So definitely the way we use water, the way we modify water, so damming it, um, putting weirs in where environmental flows, uh, managing those environmental flows. And then overall, the pressures of what urbanisation mean to those uh, freshwater systems and encroaching on these areas. So the impacts of stormwater going into these waterways that will erode um, very sensitive um, systems if they've been disturbed. So if we've taken native vegetation away from the waterways and the banks are exposed and then we get these hard and fast, you know, just torrential little downpours that we do in Brisbane, that's what we're known for. But stormwater has made the water going into these waterways harder and faster and it's just scouring out not only the in-stream channel, it's eroding those banks, it's impacting the habitat that platypus needs. So uh, females and males will burrow into the, the banks. And so they need to be stable and secure. And especially for the females, they're the ones that are building their breeding nests, they, that will lay their eggs. And so they want banks that are secure, that are going to um, have their, their babies grow up um, for around four months in them. So, so all these things, it's interconnected. There's so much pressure um, and we need to start understanding how we can better implement management and planning of um, like buffer zones for these freshwater waterways and really making it a priority for that as well. So buffer zones, do you mean kind of like pretty much physical areas where there isn't any um, urban de development. Is that what you mean by a buffer zone? Uh, so, um, so like more of the native vegetation buffering the waterways um, okay. instead of it being, it being quite narrow in some areas. You know, we want 50 to 100 metres or more. The more the better, really. But, you know, the more we can have buffering and securing and protecting these systems is something that would be important so that water being a really important thing because they rely so heavily on kind of the fresh fresh water um what so the things that you were saying um that seemed more from like what could we like individuals do in in helping with that part um or any any part in general like what can individuals uh uh do i guess to help uh platypus the one thing that I think is just uh, amazing to get on board with is your local catchment groups. Um, they're the ones that are doing the work, that are rehabilitating these areas, that are working with governments to get 
and councils to get little community grants to do the work. And so if you can spare one morning a month, like it's not a lot, um, to go and support your local catchment group and to get out and plant trees and clean up some weeds, to clean up rubbish that would enter the waterway and entangle our wildlife. Um, just it's, it's a great community connection and it really does help um, the more we can get these communities to do it and it will link up and it will grow and it will be something that will really benefit the ecosystems where, where the platypus live. Okay, so that's a, that's a big one. And so you call that a local catchment group? Yeah, yeah. You can Google like a lot of your little, most catchments will have a little catchment group or you will not be far from, maybe if your local catchment doesn't have specifically a catchment group, you wouldn't be far from one um, that would be very active in the community. Okay, so a matter of typing local catchment group in your Google, there'll be something that comes up probably near where you are. And so yeah, yeah. volunteering your time to help with the work that they do. Yeah, yeah, Okay, definitely. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Oh, so you were optimistic though, I think is what you were saying before. Yeah. Yeah, I think we have to be optimistic, right? It, it's, a, it'd be a pretty depressing job if you weren't. <laughs> yeah, and I, I feel like optimism, like, I think I've, I said this in my story, I think recently, but you need, you need the, the balance of optimism and uh, realism. But um, if you're just, yeah, based on just realism alone, I feel like you, you miss that spark to um, potentially keep going. Like the optimism is yeah. an important ingredient for your action to be, I guess, sustainable. And yeah. if you're wanting long-term change, you need sustainable type action plans when you're talking before um about the importance of water and then you're saying how from a selfish point of view like humans need water and if we need water like even from our selfish perspective we should try and do our best to kind of protect it and look after it and then all these other all these other species will benefit um as a byproduct almost and sadly i think that's probably how we should focus a lot of our communication is from that selfish perspective, you know, we want to make this change because it's got to be beneficial for this species, this species, this species. But if we're communicating that message to a, a change maker, um, we, we need to communicate it from like, how is this going to benefit either me as an individual or like, you know, this country or this community or whatever. It needs to be communicated in the, in the sense of how is this going to benefit me? And it's kind of sad to think about it that way, but yeah, it, it kind of is... Yeah what it is like if you're wanting to someone to change their way it needs to make sense yeah. in terms of addressing that selfish gene in humans yeah but even that is still really hard because for a lot of people that connection with water it comes out of a tap when i just turn the tap on and they don't think anything beyond where that water comes from and i grew up in a small country town and we were on tank water on the farm and had to, you know, be pretty like aware of how much water we were using because of drought and our tanks would run low and, you know, and it's something that I guess I've certainly always been massively aware of and moving to the city 
I it amazes me how frivolous people are with with the consumption of water. And so again, it's how do you make that that connection that this is actually a really important resource and you need to be more conscious of your usage and sustainable mm. usage of it. So yeah, so that in a, in itself is really difficult as well. Yeah, but like it is like if you were born and bred in like a in the in the city or some kind of highly urban urbanized place, it's hard for you to like it's hard for someone to appreciate the the value of something if they haven't been exposed to the consequences of not having that thing. So you're saying in That's that right. small town that you were, that yeah. you grew up in you know, you had to be careful of the, the amount of water that you use because if you use too much, then you'd be without water. And there's, then you, yeah. you, you're thirsty for a long period of time and that is uncomfortable. Yeah. But if, when you're in the city, you're living in, for, for a lot of us, you're living in this level of comfort where you just don't have to worry about any of that. You've never been exposed to yeah. a shortage of water and therefore you don't necessarily understand uh, the consequences if you don't have it. And yeah. so it's like this, 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 um, the byproduct of living really comfortably, I think, is this disconnect between the things that you consume and the, the value that those things actually have. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Great way of putting it. Yeah. So it's like, ugh, but then people want to live comfortably. So it's like, <laughs> which is like, I want to live comfortably. Exactly. Everyone wants to live comfortably, yeah. but that there are these, of course we do with this level of comfort becomes, I guess, other things that we need to think about differently because we uh, that comfort numbs us to a lot of these things. Yeah. So that's education. So yeah, education, yes. raising awareness, which is yep. the area that I'm trying to get into, which is an area that everyone can get into, which is why, like, I don't, like I said before, at the beginning of the podcast, and I try and bring it up as often as I can in these podcasts, I don't come from a, a kind of environmental background at all. Uh, like from a university degree type perspective, but like I can speak to people like you that have that experience. And um, by recording that conversation and sharing that you're indirectly um, kind of communi communicating that wisdom to everyone else that hopefully can take some benefit from it. <sighs> yeah. And that selfish gene. It's a, I don't know if it's a problem, but it's a reality that we need to factor into the decisions that we make. Yeah, and it's and we're getting there. We are having these conversations that are slowly changing people's ways. And even if that means, like, if you cut down your showering time by a minute or so, that alone, like over a long period of time, that alone, if lots of people do it, again, collectively, the power of the people, the power of collective change, mm. that adds up to a lot. So... It's just trying to get people to do these little things, make it as easy as possible to do these little things to change. And it does have a huge impact. And and I guess because I guess they don't see that impact, again, it's, it's hard about bringing that connection to them. Um, and, again, it's just continuing this conversation of engagement and education and connection to just keep it going, to get that ripple effect happening. Um, if one person listens to this and it has a light bulb moment for them, then we've done our job. Like that's phenomenal, you know, like they will then talk about it to the next person or family members or something. And that's something that I really hope for is that the more 
I love talking about platypus. I love having <laughs> discussions. I will jump on board and waffle on about them to no end. And I just hope that that sparks just one little thing for someone and then it's that ripple effect and slowly we can start see some, to see some change. Yeah, that's, it's, I say this every podcast, the Tanzanian proverb of little by little, little becomes a lot. And I, yes. I love it so much because it's just so yep. true. Like the, the weight of your individual, individual action is actually really important, but Definitely. it becomes, you know, a lot more important when you combine that with, you know, many other individual actions as well. And there's this snowball effect, there's this compounding uh, effect to that to that impact. And so I'm quite interested in the concept of like eco habits. So these little tiny yeah. things that we do on a day-to-day basis. So either sharing one minute or less or all these different little things that you can do, trying to integrate um, an eco habit into your day-to-day lifestyle yeah. in a way where it becomes kind of seamless. You're not even thinking about it. You're just doing it. And then over a period of time, exactly. like, You've, you've made a big difference just on these tiny, tiny, tiny changes that you do every yep. single day. So eco exactly. habits, eco habits, whatever they are, um, there's many of them out there. Okay, we're nearing the end. How can people connect with you online and learn more about your work and also learn about the mystical, amazing platypus? Uh, my most active for my research is my Instagram handle, so platypus underscore protector. And I try and kind of put a lot of uh, information and um, update people on my research. And this will be hopefully my final year. So we'll be starting to get some interesting results. And so that'll be really great to communicate out into the world. But I'm also linked with the Wildlife Preservation Society of Queensland, their Platypus Watch Network. And they have a great Facebook page with a lot of great information and um, information about our ongoing environmental DNA project uh, within the greater Brisbane region and if you are also wanting to help with that project financially um, you can certainly donate to Platypus Watch Um, it's a it'll go directly for us to take our water samples for our eDNA project so um, that'll be our 2021 um, field season so that'll be amazing. Okay so I'll I'll add all these links and whatnot into into the different social media platforms. Um, the final question is what thought or message or whatever, what words do you want to leave to the listeners of the conservation tribe? Oh, it's always a hard one. <laughs> I think we've already really touched on it. It's continue to have that conversation. If you found something interesting in, a, in this podcast, in all your other podcasts, in something, tell that to someone else and keep that conversation going and hopefully that ripple effect happening because that's it's really important and it's what we need to do Um, it's why we continue to engage and have these uh, podcasts presentations webinars you know anything and everything to get that information out there and for anyone who's listening to be able to take that and then pass that on is is something that's really important
Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.